We've got a ton of people that are down there. Some will be back, but most will not uh, be back. And if they're back, they're probably not going to be at help group Saturday morning. So we really, uh, this month again, is one of those critical ones. We had almost 400 families, over 400 last week. Or last month, excuse me, and so this month, again, being good weather, we'll probably have a huge turnout, uh, particularly the closed closet. I know a number of our people that would normally do that are also going to be out of town, different places this Saturday. So if you can be there, if you've never participated in it, you're the one that will be blessed, whether you're dealing with the food or you're dealing with the clothes upstairs. <coughs> Either way, you're the one that will be blessed. So I, I really encourage you and ask you, if you're available Saturday from about 10 to noon. Uh, you could come early and help set up or stay afterwards and help tear down. But uh, from about 10 to noon Saturday at the Bartley campus, if you can do that, it would be uh, uh, real helpful. All right, turn to Acts chapter 21. We are looking at Paul at Jerusalem. And as we're wrapping up the study of the book of Acts, I told you last week, when you reach this point in Acts is a book of history, so it's always important to keep that in mind as you study in a book of the Bible, what is that type of book are you studying? For example, if it's an epistle, pretty much you're looking at deep doctrinal truths you're trying to learn and apply to your life. You're studying the Psalms or Proverbs, books of wisdom, books of poetry to learn and, and meditate on, kind of like, well, great is thy faithfulness, just to stop and meditate on the great truths that you're reading in, in that particular Psalm, whatever it might be. For example, Psalm 119, that long, long Psalm, is all about the, the word of God and how special it is and what it means to us and to stop and meditate on those kind of things. And, and the Jews memorized the Psalms. They were, that was their hymn book. They would sing them and chant them at different moments, of particularly festivals, they would sing them. So anyway, that's, that's Psalms, that, uh, books of history like Acts. Get the context. What exactly is going on in the book itself? Obviously, you learn doctrine through that, but you also learn by example. And one of the things that's really benefited me as we've studied Acts together. For Marcus and I were talking about it last week. We we're going to finish it up here by before uh, Christmas, before the, probably before Thanksgiving. We're going to wrap up the book of Acts. And a year and a half, almost two years, we've been studying this book. And one of the things that jumps off the pages to me is you study the history of the early church was the faithfulness of God. Is that when God tells you, I'm going to do something, what do you know? He is going to do it. Uh, the great covenant that made with Abraham, that one of the things that God was establishing was how he was going to rule history and bring the Messiah. And his point was to Abraham, I will, I will, I will. Abraham, you don't have to do anything. I'm going to do these following things. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a, a land. I'm going to give you a nation. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. Now, we later come to, and we've seen it a number of times in the book of Acts, later that will come down to Jews versus Gentiles. And that's why in the Great Commission, which is part of what we're studying, the top of your handout, Jesus went out of his way to say to those Jewish men, go to the nations, go to the Gentiles. Because this great eternal plan of God, and I, your Savior, is for all men. All men, Jew and Gentile. And so the faithfulness of God jumps off the pages of history, pages of Scripture, obviously, specifically as we look at the book of Acts, and specifically now as we're looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. 
One of the things that astounds me about the life of Paul is that repeatedly he just has to get up off the mat and go do what God wants him to do, knowing what? Chains and tribulations await me. That's what I'm going to encounter, but it's what God wants me. He wants me to preach the gospel. It's my debt, that's the way he writes later. My debt I owe to you to share with you this incredible good news, the gospel. And I think if we take nothing else from the book of Acts, and we've learned so much, it's this. The gospel is the good news of Jesus the Christ who came, who died, who was buried, rose again, and we get the privilege of sharing that with people. And sometimes that's difficult. So we're going to see with Paul from this moment forward, as we wrap up the book of Acts, Paul will be a prisoner. It's really beautiful as you read through the book of Acts, we're not told at the end of the book of Acts, he's still there. It's open-ended. And I think the reason for that is, one of the reasons, we don't know all the reasons, but one of the reasons that's the, the way Acts ends, I think, is that did the gospel end with the life of Paul ending? Of course not. Will it end with our lives? Of course not. I think I shared this with you guys. I've shared it with somebody in the last few weeks that I've been saved since 1970. In April will be 50 years I've been a believer. And one of the first books I read, somebody gave me a book to read, and looking back on it now, it was very trite, but uh, looking back, and then this somebody gave me a book by Francis Schaeffer, and I said, that ain't trite, uh, uh, deep. Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis, and I started reading them, thinking, I have no idea what I'm reading. I better read this again, and over and over. But one of the things that people have been saying to me since I was born again, 16-year-old kid in 1970, was Jesus is coming back this week. Now, there's some people that have said, I know he's coming back. Like that guy wrote that uh, incredible book. Incredibly stupid book, but incredible. 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Guess what? He was wrong. And the point being, all we really know is Jesus is what? Coming back. Do we know when? No, we don't. But the beauty of the church is, how does the Bible end? Don't turn over and look. Don't turn to the book of concordance, because you you won't learn anything. Don't turn to the book of concordance and back up the revelation. But how does the Bible end? What's the last thing it says? Anybody know? Maranatha, even what? Lord Jesus, come quickly. The blessed hope of the church is we know he's coming back. We know the future. We probably start a psychic network. I uh, used this before, but to me it was very funny. When the psychic network, network closed, what were people saying about it? Telling me, shouldn't they have seen that coming? You can save that one, use it, and impress your friends. All right. The great hope of the church is we know the future. We've read the end of the book. We know how it all turns out. We fight, someone has said, theologian has said, we fight from victory Not to gain victory. Victory was won when Jesus stepped out of that grave and rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. It is finished. 
And so as we look and wrap up the life of Paul recorded for us historically, we'll obviously see other things in, in his epistles. But as we look historically at the book of Acts, he's now at Jerusalem. So if you'll take your hand out, you'll look. Last week we covered number one and two. His arrival at Jerusalem and his arrest at Jerusalem. So what we're going to focus on today is his address to this Jewish mob at Jerusalem. His address to this Jewish mob. So look at chapter 21, verse 36. Let's start there. 21, 36. The multitude of the people followed after. These are the, this Jewish mob, primarily Jews from Asia that have come to Jerusalem. They're stirring up trouble. They're following Paul from Ephesus to just create more problems. Remember, he just simply had this burden, this debt on his heart to share the gospel, even if it meant imprisonment, even if it meant beating, even if it meant them trying to kill him. And it's such, it's such a powerful example just do what God wants you to do and let him work mightily in your life. Verse 36 again. A multitude of people followed after him, crying out, away with him. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, so these are the Romans that basically saved his life. They rescued him from this mob that was going to kill him, Jewish mob. He said to the commander of the Romans, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? So here's Paul's goal. He's about to ask to address this Jewish mob. His goal is to say to them, I'm totally committed to this Jewish mob. They're trying to kill him. Remember the context. They want to kill him or they want the Romans. They want somebody to kill him. And his goal is, I want them to understand I am totally committed to Judaism in the true sense of what it should be, that it's, it brought us the Messiah Jesus is the Messiah, all that we Jews have been looking for forever. He is the answer to our prayers. He's the fulfillment of our scriptures. He is the great I am. He is, and I'm totally committed to Judaism. Not to scold them, not to put them down, not. He wants to appeal to them with reason, respect, and to make peace with them as fellow Jews. Maybe they don't agree that Jesus is the Messiah. Now let's talk about it. Please look up here and understand this principle because so many times evangelicals miss this. Our responsibility as Christians is to share the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news of Jesus who is the Christ, who came, who died, who buried, who rose again to conquer sin and death and can give you forgiveness of sins. Give you peace, give you hope, give you joy, give you everything a human being was created to have. You find it in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We understand those things, and we're excited about them. We want people to know that. But we are to do that. And here's the part sometimes evangelicals forget. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. Share the gospel. What's the rest of that verse say? Anybody know? What? With gentleness and respect. Just because somebody disagrees with you does not mean you should put them down. What it means is you should care. You should listen. You should hear them. Where are you coming from? Why do you believe what you believe? Let's talk about it. Let's dialogue. Let me share with you why I believe the gospel will set you free. And if you disagree, that's okay. I still love you. 
I still want to share with you. How many of you, if you don't mind raising your hands, if you don't raise them, I won't know. But anyway, how many of you, if you don't mind raising your hands, have somebody in your family, we'll start there, in your family that you're really burdened for that's not a believer? Would you raise your hand? Many of you. I have many. I don't have enough hands to raise one for every member of my own family that I'm burdened for. Both my brothers, all my cousins, they're not believe, they don't care, they're not interested in the things of God. Should that bother me? Yeah. It should, and it does. So in a loving, compassionate, respectful way, I want to share the gospel with them. How many of you have somebody you work with that you're burdened for? There you go. So here's what you should do. If you learn nothing else from the life of the Apostle Paul, we talked about this at our congregational meeting. Take one name, just one, start with one. What you'll find out is that it won't end with one. It will carry over. Start praying every day for that one person that you want to be able to talk to. One person. Start with just one. Could be somebody you work with. How many of you have a neighbor that you'd like to share the gospel with? Neighbor? Friend? Family member? Why? Why is it important? Because Jesus died for every one of them. How many of you have somebody that doesn't like you that you're really burdened for? Again, I ain't got enough hands. One of the ways God, the Holy Spirit, convicts me when I pray is to pray for people that don't like me. I don't really want to do that. I don't want to pray for people that don't. I, you know, the Bible says, Jesus says, somebody despitefully uses you, what, you, what should you do? Turn around and ask God to bless them. I ain't doing that. Until the Holy Spirit gets my attention and says, hey, bub, we ain't going any further. That's the way the Holy Spirit talks. I don't know if y'all Listen, bub, we ain't going any further until you do what I told you to do. You pray for that guy who hates you. Pray for that guy that lied about you. You pray for that guy that used you. You pray just yesterday. Just yesterday. I talked to somebody that left our church a long time ago. You know what he told me? I found out, Randy, that what they told me about you was not true. I said, I'll be dead gum. All you had to do was come ask me. I would have told you. What a good guy I am. Happens all the time. That's the reason a lot of pastors don't last in the ministry very long. The reason I thank God that, that I'm a pastor where I am because of the people, you guys and the people at Bartlett, loving, caring, only want to do what the Lord wants. And I know you're not perfect. I really know you're not perfect. You know how I know you're not perfect? Because nobody is. Nobody. But the beauty of looking at Paul's understanding. He, he knew he was not perfect. What did he call himself? Chief among sinners? What I don't want to do, I don't do what I don't want to do. That's what I end up doing. Oh, who will deliver me from the body of this death? This was a guy who gave up his life repeatedly saying, if, whatever you got to do to me, do it, but I'm going to preach the gospel. And he struggled with sin. Good God, if he struggled with sin, what does that mean about you? You're going to struggle, but don't give up. Don't give up. So let's look at what Paul did. He wants to address this mob. They're trying to kill him. He just wants to talk to them. 
So he addresses the Roman guard and wants him to understand his citizenship. Not his Roman citizenship. He'll get to that later. Look at verse 38. The end of verse 30 says, the command says, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. It doesn't mean mean, means like uh, insignificant. It was a significant place. I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Here's what Paul says. He speaks to the Roman commander in Greek, which astounded the commander because Paul was what? Jewish. So he was going, well, he'll speak in Hebrew. He said, well, what are you doing speaking Greek? Are, are you not that Egyptian terrorist? We don't have to go back and study all the history, but there was a, a, a terrorist that had caused all kinds of problems for them and, uh, to out in the wilderness. Anyway, they think, well, this must be who this guy is. Why do they, they want to kill him for some reason. Here's what Paul wants the guy to understand. Look at verse 38 again. He says, you're not the Egyptian. You sometime ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out of the wilderness. Here's what Paul is saying. They're assuming that this is who Paul is, the Roman commander is. Paul saying, I'm not a common criminal. I'm a Jewish citizen, verse 39, born in a Gentile city. Here's his point. I have every right as a Jew, born in a city that's Gentile, but a Jew, Later, he'll get to his Jewish resume, and he'll get to his Roman citizenship, and that will be very important. But right here, here's what he's saying to that Roman commander. I have every right as a Jewish citizen to be here at Jerusalem at Pentecost. All male Jews were required to come to Jerusalem at Pentecost to celebrate. He said, I have every right to be here, and yet they're trying to kill me. Right now, he's just dealing with the commander. So I want to address them and deal with this. Verse 40. So when he had given him permission, the Roman commander gave Paul permission. Paul stood on the stairs. He motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was great silence, remember, this is a mob trying to kill him. And he finally gets them to quiet down. He spoke to them in the Hebrew language. He speaks to the Roman commander in Greek. He speaks to the Jews now in Hebrew. What are we knowing? About, what are we knowing? I'm not Paul, obviously, because he's, my point is he's well-educated, unlike me. Clearly fluent in two languages, also uses Aramaic. Well-educated. We discovered he was a Pharisee. He was on the Sanhedrin. This is not your average knucklehead criminal that the mob just want out to get. So he addresses them in Hebrew. Now, when he starts speaking to the Jews in Hebrew, what's, what are the Romans doing at this point? They don't, have one, they don't have an app on their phone so they can understand what he's saying. They don't know what he's saying to the Jews. The Romans are just there now. They don't know. They don't speak Hebrew. They speak Greek slash, in some cases, Latin, Greek. The common language. So, he wants, he's now going to address the Jewish mob. Here's what he's saying. Why is he speaking to them in Hebrew? Many of them did speak Greek, but the point is he wanted them to know what? I'm one of you. I'm a Hebrew citizen. I am one of you. I want to get your attention. And by the way, the Hellenistic Jews, who would have been the Greeks that are coming there to cause the problems for him, many of them would also not 
understand him in Hebrew. So he's speaking to the Jewish Jews. I want you to understand I'm with you. I'm one of you. I'm going to give you chapter 22, verse 1. Remember, when this was written, there were no chapter verse designations. So the next thing, 22.1. Brethren and fathers, Jews, fellow Jews, hear my defense before you now. So what he's about to do, speaking to the Jews as a Jew, he's going to give them his defense of his devout Judaism. And he's going to start with his conduct before he was converted to being a follower of Jesus the Christ or Messiah, who was I prior to that? Chapter 22, verse 2. When they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. In other words, they looked around and go, whoa. Well, let's hear what he has to say. Paul said, I'm indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders, that'd be the Sanhedrin, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Here's my Jewish resume. I was trained by Gamaliel, who was the number one Jewish rabbi of the day. In other words, I didn't go to the University of Memphis. I went to Duke. I went to Harvard. I went to one, an Ivy League school. I trained at the feet of Gamaliel. I grew up in Jerusalem. I was strictly taught the law. I, am, I was a Pharisee. I was, quote, zealous toward God as you all are today. In other words, he was saying, I understand your fervor for the law. I just think it's pointed in the wrong direction. You're trying to kill me. I love the law. I love the God of the Hebrews, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. I understand this is who I am. In Philippians chapter 3, you don't have to turn over there. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is giving his resume. He puts it this way. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Here's what he's saying. I was once like you, a total zealot, and when it came to the law, I didn't commit sin. You see, the Pharisees believed they were blameless when it came, you kept the law the way they saw the law. They looked at themselves as self-righteous. That's why Jesus was so emphatic in speaking to the crowds to say to them, do not make your religion like that of the Pharisees. They are self-righteous, and that will take you to hell. That's exactly what Jesus said. Self-righteousness will save how many people? None. There are none righteous. No, not one. I did go to Memphis. I can figure that one out. No, not one. Jesus wanted them to understand that they think that they're righteous. They're going to stand before God one day and they're all going to go to hell. He said that to the Pharisees. You're going to hell and you're taking people with you. You're a blind guide. You're a poisonous snake. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. You haven't been redeemed. You're just religious. 
what, G, what Paul's trying to get them to understand here is I was a zealot. That's who I was. Now notice verse 4 and 5. I persecuted the followers of the way that would have been followers of Jesus. Before they were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way. So Paul said, I was their persecutor. I put them in prisons. Men and women. I was sent by the Sanhedrin on my way to Damascus to continue that. And then something happened to me. Here's his next point. That's who I was, and then I had an experience. My conversion experience. Look at verse 6. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus. Remember, he's on his way to Damascus to imprison and to have killed followers of Jesus. I came near Damascus at, at about noon. A great light from heaven shone around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, and they were afraid. I bet they were. I bet they were. They did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Well, I said, what shall I do? What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. He was blinded. A certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. He stood and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked at him. In other words, he was healed. He said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will. See the just one, the righteous one, the Messiah. Hear the voice of his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard, that of the Messiah. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. His conversion experience. We're not going to go into great detail because we've already seen this. this. His conversion experience, Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus is recounted three times in the book of Acts. It doesn't take a scholar to understand what. If it's in this book three times, that makes it what? Real important, significant in the history of the early church. Three times it's retold, told for us in the book of Acts. Very significant. What he's doing here is giving his personal testimony. He's not trying to win an argument. He wants them to understand on a personal level, this is what happened to me. Now, please look at me for just a moment. If you're born again, if you know Christ is your Savior... You have a personal testimony. Doesn't mean everybody else is going to have the same personal testimony, right? If we went around the room and everyone shared how they were saved, it would be different. Now, everybody thinks you've got to have the, the great testimony like, I'm, I was a drug addict and I spent 20 years in prison and, and God showed up in my cell one night and saved me and set me free. The, the, the doors fell open and here I am. The woo. You know, the best kind of conversion experience is the one my wife went through. When it grew up in a home where Jesus was honored, Jesus was loved, Jesus was taught. Now, her parents, well, her mom was perfect. Her, her, her dad wasn't perfect. Her mom was close. She grew up in a home, the baby of, what, 10, 20 chick kids, whatever it was. She was the baby, and then she met me, and things changed. She met sin, she met me. She grew up in a home, this, this, is, this is the way it ought to be. She grew up in a home 
where Jesus was honored, Jesus was loved, and at some point early in her life, six, seven, eight years old, she gave her life to Christ and is still living that way. Let's see, she was seven, 30 years later, she's still living that way. <laughs> she's smiling, somebody looking. I'm all right, I'm going to be all right. Okay. And here she is years later, living for Jesus, pouring herself into her children and her grandchildren, and loving people. Nothing radical. Mary never murdered anyone I know of. She tried me once, but or, or, or thought about it. She didn't do drugs. She she was a uh, didn't have any, she never she, she's a a great person. She loves Jesus and lived the God has always lived a godly life. That's a testimony. That's her personal testimony. Mine was you grew up in a, a very abusive home. My dad was a mean drunk who beat my mom regularly. My, me and my two brothers had to pull my dad off my mom on a regular basis. Or he, I don't know what he would have done to her. I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with my dad. I hated my dad. And I was just basically there to protect my mom. And then at 16, somebody shared the gospel with me, and I was miraculously saved. said, I, I need that in my life. Man, I need somebody to love me unconditionally like Jesus did. I never even understood what that meant. He introduced me to Mary. I began to meet Christians, began to grow. Man, if you'd asked me at 16, do you think you'll ever be a preacher? You know what my answer would have been? <laughs> That's funny. But God had a plan, didn't he? That's a personal testimony. It's different for everybody. You go around the room and every one of you is different. The point is, it's yours. That doesn't mean they're going to agree that Jesus is... Again, I grew up, my two siblings, we slept in the same bedroom in our little 800 square foot house in East Memphis. So I get saved and I come home and you know my personality. What do I want to talk about with my brothers? You know you're going to hell. Hey, Ricky, you know you're going to hell. And hey, hey, Kevin, you know you're going to hell. You need to be like me. I didn't know what I was talking about. I just knew this was cool and I want my brothers to. Man, I tried to do that with my dad. I only tried it once until, he, until the end of, near the end of his life because that, that wasn't a good thing. My mom and I talked about it all the time. I wanted my brothers to know. It changed me because the gospel will set you free. Did I understand anything about the Bible? No, not at that point. All I knew was that Jesus had died for my sins, and I knew I was a sinner, and I want, he would forgive me, and I thought, man, somebody loved me that much. I want that in my life. That's all I knew. But then God gives you a thirst to know more and to grow. And then you look back 50 years later, and I see what God had planned for me. I just can't wait to see what he does in the next 50 years. Won't be with me, but whatever he does. It's exciting. Don't ever think your personal testimony is not important. That's all Paul's doing here. He's saying, I hated followers of Jesus as the Christ, just like you do. You don't want to hear the gospel. I was the same way. I was zealous for the law and hated Jesus and those followers. I wanted to put him in prison. I wanted to stop it. And then I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and I was radically changed. And he gave me a commission. Next point, verse 17. I was given a commission by Jesus himself. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple. I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. They will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue 
I imprisoned and I beat those who believe on you. When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Jesus said to me, depart, I'm going to send you far from here to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. Jesus' number one enemy, the followers of Jesus, their number one enemy is at Jerusalem. This is about three years later, and what does Jesus say to him? You're my chosen one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we've studied in the book of Acts. Were they ready to receive Saul of Tarsus? Of course not. You don't let the fox in the hen house. If it hadn't been for Barnabas, the hand of God bringing Barnabas there, Paul, Saul of Tarsus would not have been led into the church. But God had a plan. He was commissioned by Jesus himself. And by the way, so were you. So were you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I will be with you always. That has not changed. That's still the commission on the church. And if you're born again, you're part of the church. Doesn't mean all of us, we're going to do it in different ways. We're still supposed to do it. Now look at the response of the mob. Verse 22. Notice where they are again. As they listen to Paul, they listen to Paul until this word. Pause. Context. Look back at the next word, verse, the previous verse. What's the word that set them off? Remember they're Jewish. Gentiles. Uh-uh. We hate Gentiles. And therefore, we're going to kill you, Paul. You're telling us we're going to take this good news of the Messiah to the Gentiles. Oh, no, we're not. This word, verse 22. They heard this word. They raised their voices and said, they're screaming again as a mob, away with such a fellow from the earth. He's not fit to live. Killing. They cried out, tore off their clothes, threw dust into the air. In other words, a violent mob, we, emotional, we want to kill him. As soon as he mentions Gentiles. This was a number one heresy to them, to think that Gentiles could be equal with Jews. Paul is trying to address them. Now, look at number four on your handout, and look at Paul's attitude in the midst of all this. First with the Romans. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. This is the Roman commander. They said he should be examined under scourging so that they might know why the mob shouted so against him. In other words, why do they want to kill this guy? The Romans, verse 24, you got to understand the Romans. They're just tough soldiers. Their answer is, we don't know why this mob wants to kill him. We're going to beat the answer out of him. It's exactly what scourging is. What did they do to Jesus before they put him on the cross? They scourged him. And I know you probably know this, but it's a helpful context to remember. Scourging was basically a cat of nine tails with stuff attached to it like stones and pieces of metal, whatever they could find, and they would whip you with it until your vital organs were exposed, and most of the time you bled to death after a scourging. 
you were a bloody pulp. So, so we got to find out what's going on here, why they're so intent on killing him. We're going to beat it out of him. They decided to scourge him to get the truth. Because it appeared, again, put yourself in the shoes of the Romans. Huge mom, this one guy, in their mind, logically, at the moment, looking at it, what appears to be the problem here? This Paul guy, apparently, is the issue. We've got to figure out what's going on. We've got to do something about it. Important to remember, they don't know at this point Paul is a Roman citizen. They're about to find out, verse 25. And as they bound him with thongs, in other words, they're getting ready to beat him to death, in it, probably. I love Paul. Remember, Paul said, all I know that awaits me at Jerusalem was what? Chains and tribulations. This would fall into the category of both. Chain him up and beat him to death. Paul said to the centurion, the Roman commander who's standing by, I love this. Uh, by the way, before you kill me, let me ask you a question. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Because it was illegal for them to scourge a Roman citizen, especially one who hadn't had a trial. An uncondemned Roman? Verse 29. Immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out he was a Roman because he had bound him. Verse 26, when the centurion heard that, that he was a Roman, he went and told the commander, saying, take care what you do, this man is a Roman. The commander came and he said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes. Verse 28, the commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. I'm a Roman citizen. I paid for it. Paul said, really? You paid for it, huh? I was born a Roman. By the way, which would have been more significant? Buying it or being born one? Clearly being born one. I love, it's almost like the humor God has. Oh, really? You bought it? I hate you had to pay that much for it. Mine's free. I'm a free-born Roman. And if you scourge me, guess what might happen to you? By law, had they scourged Paul, a Roman citizen by law, you know what would happen to the commander? He would have been killed. They took their laws real serious. And they didn't play around. Paul says, I was born a citizen. 1 Peter 2, the Bible says this. Talking about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Paul's attitude was not to mock the Roman, but simply to say, I just want to make sure you've got all the information. I'm a Roman citizen even more so than you. Now, if you want to scourge me, go ahead. Because he knew probably what was going to happen. They're not scourging me. Now, quickly, let's look at Paul's attitude with the Sanhedrin. Verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Roman commander, wanted to know why Paul was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and it, and commanded the chief priests and their council, that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin, to appear. And he brought Paul down and he set Paul before the Sanhedrin. Remember, Jewish council. No chapter verse designations. The next thing, Paul, chapter 23, verse 1. 
Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So he said, We'll take him to Sanhedrin. Maybe they can tell us what his crime is. And by the way, this is the fifth and the last time that's recorded for us that the Sanhedrin will evaluate the claims of Jesus Christ. They did it with Jesus himself. They did it with Peter and John. They did it with the apostles. They did it with Stephen. And now they're going to do it with Paul. The claims of this Jesus to be that he is the Messiah for the fifth time, the Sanhedrin is going to examine that. So what's Paul's attitude with them? Remember, he was on this Sanhedrin at one point. What's the first thing he says in chapter 23, verse 1? Men and brethren, immediately by saying that, Paul puts himself on the level of equality. He doesn't address them as, oh, great elders and rulers of Israel, which is what you were supposed to do. He's saying to them, hey, boys, I'm one of you. Men and brethren. There's 70 or 71 of them there, the leading Jews with the high priest presiding over this. This was the council. For him to say men and brethren, they would have found that incredibly offensive because he's supposed to cow down to them as the Sanhedrin. He looks earnestly at them, verse 1. The conviction of what he's about to say. And then he says in verse 1, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I haven't committed a crime. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. Why are we here today? What have I done that's illegal? Why am I here? I've lived in good conscience. Now, that doesn't mean Paul hadn't done things wrong. The point was, according to what he knew when he was doing that, according to the law, I've always lived as a good citizen. It's ironic. Our, the word live there in, in the original language, in that verse, verse 1, I have lived in good conscience before you to this day. You know what English word we get for that? Politics. Uh, kind of a... Kind of a Goofy. I've lived in good conscience, really. Where'd you get your conscience? To this day. Paul's saying, I've been a good citizen. Unlike, he doesn't say it, unlike many of you. I have. Civil, he's only talking about civil obedience here. I haven't committed a crime. Verse 2. Look at the response. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. Paul's saying, I'm innocent of this riot the Romans are concerned about. I'm a sincere, loyal Jew. I'm forgiven in Christ, and I understand grace, which you don't understand. But I live in good conscience. What is the high priest's response to this? He tells the Jewish, the temple guard, to do what? Strike him on the mouth. And by the way, in Greek, that doesn't mean they slapped him. Striking means beat him severely in the mouth. This Ananias, by the way, just historically was probably from AD 47 to AD 59, the most corrupt high priest they'd ever known. Uh, He stole tithes. Uh, He was incredibly wicked. He was just a demagogue, had a violent temper. He was assassinated in AD 66 by his own people. Very much pro-Rome, very much in bed, the word politics, again, very much in bed with the Romans or whatever he needed to do to keep peace so he could make money. So he has Paul struck in the face, which, by the way, 
for one Jew to strike another Jew in the face is one of the most offensive things you could possibly do to them. Not guilty of anything. So this was also against their own law. So verse 3, Paul calls out Ananias' hypocrisy. He said to them, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you not command me to be struck contrary to the law? In other words, you just sit right here as the Sanhedrin, the final arbiter of all the law in Israel, and you just broke the law by having me struck in the mouth. You're a whitewashed wall. What is that reminiscent of, the phrase whitewashed wall? In Ezekiel 13, the Bible says this. You seduced by people saying, peace, when there is no peace, one beside but builds a wall and they plaster it with untempered mortar. In Hebrew, that means they whitewashed it. I will break down the wall you've plastered with whitewashed mortar. Bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be uncovered. It will fall and you shall be consumed in the midst of it. You shall know that I am the Lord. In Ezekiel 13, that was God addressing false prophets. By the way, do you think Ananias knew that verse, that passage? Of course he did. Everybody in the room knew it. And when Paul said, you're a whitewashed wall, they knew exactly what he was talking about. You're a false leader, Ananias, and God will strike you. It's exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. What did he call them? Whitewashed tombs. Paul, calls, Paul in essence, calls him out as a hypocrite. Verse 4, those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. In other words, Paul says, I respect the office of the high priest. I did not know Ananias was the high priest. I respect the office. But what he did was contrary to the law. Just a little side note, doesn't cost you anything extra. Politics being part of our word for the day. I don't like a lot of things that go on in Washington, D.C., and neither do you. But you are to pray for them. We're commanded to pray for them. By the way, do you think they need our prayers? Oh, dear God, do they need them? Pray for them. Okay, that didn't cost anything either. All right. So verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees, the other Pharisees on the Sanhedrin, he cried out in the council. Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided for the Sadducees, say there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. There arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. Who's that sound reminiscent of? Again, Pilate, Jesus. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. I love this. Paul is brilliant. Remember, he'd been on the Sanhedrin. So what he focuses on, the number one tenet of Christianity. What set Christianity apart? What made Jesus the Christ? He rose from the dead. So Paul knew the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees were the more powerful. We talk about the Pharisees all the time. But the Sadducees were the more, pow more powerful of the group, the more political group. They did not believe in the strictness of the law like the Pharisees did. They didn't believe in hope. They didn't believe in resurrection. So what Paul, what Paul says, well, I'm a Pharisee. I believe in hope. And I believe in resurrection. And so what do the Pharisees on the Sanhedrin say? 
wait a minute, we, we can't condemn this guy. He believes just like we do. And the Sadducees said, wait a minute, let's go outside and talk about this. So there's a huge fight. All Paul says is, hey, I'm a Pharisee. I believe what Scripture teaches about hope and resurrection. Brilliant. Here's what Paul knew at this point. A fair trial with these guys was what? An oxymoron. It wasn't going to happen. They're good. They want to kill him. So chaos results. Look at verse 7, dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 9, a loud outcry and they protested. Verse 10, a great dissension. Now, let's wrap this up. Verse 10. There arose a great dissension. The commander, fearing Paul, might be pulled to pieces by them. This is how violent they were getting. Commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Take him by force. Again, he's rescued the sovereignty of God. These Jews were going to kill him. They, they, they lost their minds. They were going to tear him apart. They were going to kill him. And so God has the Roman Empire saving. There's no rational decision coming. So he's rescued by the Roman guards. They arrest Paul to protect him. They take him by force from the Sanhedrin. Verse 11. They've got him in the barracks for his own safety. The following night, verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you testified for me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. How many times have we seen as we've gone through the book of Acts, Paul's number one desire was to get where? Rome. He's going to get there. But every day it seems like he's got to get there. He almost gets killed trying to get there. What does Jesus say? Jesus appears to him and says what? By the way, did Jesus stop him from being persecuted? No. Did Jesus stop him from almost being killed twice in the same day? No. Or two days? No. But Jesus does appear to him and say what? Be of good cheer. Oh, Lord, can we talk about what this good cheer stuff means? You ever feel that way? Be of good cheer. You're going to get to Rome. I know it's tough. By the way, it's, it's going to be tough. He's, he's going to go to prison in Caesarea for a couple of years before he ever gets to Rome. I'm going to get you to Rome. By the way, God's timing is always what? Perfect, and it's not on our time frame. God's outside time. Okay, so it takes two more years. God knows what he's doing. He doesn't make mistakes. So what you're going to see here is that Paul just simply trusts God. Because what God is going to do, and we'll see this in the next couple of weeks as we wrap this up, what God's going to do is get him before Felix, the Roman governor. He's going to get him before Festus, Roman ruler. He's going to preach the gospel. God gets him there, but it's in a difficult way. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. And I think all of us need to be reminded that the commission on our lives has not changed. We, like Paul, are to go where you send us and preach the gospel, realizing Paul knew it would be chains and tribulations. He just didn't know exactly 
what they were going to be and how bad it was going to be. But he knew it was going to be difficult. And we need to understand that it's not easy. It will be hard. We thank you, Father, that you've changed us and you want to use us to communicate truth and hope because of the resurrection to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing, and if you'd like me to pray with you, I'll be down front. Just say a prayer for Drew. Yeah, I'll do that. Because he's, um, she wouldn't agree to anything, and now he won't be able to see Bo till after November 5th. Okay, let's pray. Father, we uh, we both hurt for Drew, and I'm sitting there last night even talking with Carrie about my son and issue with his daughter and how it hurts. And, and Lord, we just pray for your sovereign hand. Drew loves you. He's a good man. We just pray you'd work it out where he can have the right time with his son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for your heart. And I love you.
Amen. There's a couple of things I'll mention to you, and then we will. I'm going to ask Russ to come close us in prayer today. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, we are honored you, you've chosen to be here. And uh, you could have been anywhere else. We thank you for being here, and we do not ask you to give. You're our guest. We have a gift for you at the Welcome Center when you leave. And for everyone else, if this is your home, just continue to give through the black boxes or online. Just faithfully, we are we share with our congregational meeting. We've had an incredible year, fiscal year. Um, our giving this year has been uh, incredible. We are grateful for what uh, God has done through you. It makes a lot of all that we do possible. So thank you for your faithfulness and continue to do that. Uh, just a couple of quick things, or one thing for sure. If you want your child to play basketball, you need to get them signed up right away. Stuff's right out next to my palatial office here. There's a there's some forms right there, and you can fill that out if you'd like for your child to play basketball. And in a moment when we get ready to leave, most of our people that know what's going on are suffering for Jesus and Destin. So if you'll help stack the chairs, and Russ knows how to set the room up, I think. Uh, he's the only one in town that does. So I'm going to have Russ close us in prayer, and then he can kind of, with the table stuff, show you how to get the room set up. You got to turn it on. I don't know how to turn it on. Push the button. Uh, Okay. 